And I marched bravely across the bed of hot coals in that moment overcome by enthusiasm, overconfident in my ability to endure the risk, I burned the hell out of the soles of my feet. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'll be your worst podcast host for the day. And I'm here with featured guest Don Moore. Don, are you ready to rock? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Don't get too confident about it. Nah. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it under control. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to introduce you to the audience here. Don Moore holds the Lorraine Tyson Mitchell Chair in Leadership at the Haas School of Business at the University of California at Berkeley. His research interests include overconfidence, including when people think they are better than they actually are, when people think they are better than others, and when they are too sure they know the truth. He is occasionally, only occasionally, overconfident. And to listeners out there, I highly recommend that you go purchase his book, Perfectly Confident, How to Calibrate Your Decisions Wisely. It's available on Amazon, but also, most importantly, you can go right now to his website, perfectlyconfident.com, and get some of your questions answered. But let me ask you, Don, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Wow. So I am a professor at UC Berkeley. I encounter lots of eager and enthusiastic MBAs and have the privilege of enacting one of my school's defining principles, which is confidence without attitude. Calibrating my students' confidence is a perennial challenge that I do my best to live up to. Well, it's kind of an interesting thing because when, when I, as I get older, I look back at what I knew, what I confidently knew at the age of 20, and I cry. <laughs> I cry. And I want to tell you a story about my youth. When I was young, I had, had, I had actually struggled with addiction. And I went through rehab, three different rehabs to get through it. And at the age of 17, I left the final rehab in Ohio. And from that day to today, I've been clean from alcohol and drugs, which has been pretty remarkable. <laughs> but the point that I want to raise is that when I got out of there and I kind of got my mind straight, I had, I had my opinions. And I had my best friend, Dave, and he and I hung out a lot when we were young. And then about 10 years ago, Dave came to visit me in Thailand. And when he came to visit me here in Thailand, he asked me, you know, we were talking about the drug problem and people go to jail for life for drugs in Thailand. And we were talking about it, and I was talking about how I just think it's ridiculous, this war on drugs. And the reality is, is that, you know, it's just caused more problem than, than the other. And I think it should be decriminalized. And he just flipped a lid. He looked at me and said, what are you talking about? All of our youth, all you ever said is we have to get tough in the war on drugs. That's the way we solve this problem. More police, more border patrol, more. And I just thought, that is amazing how you can feel so confident about something that you totally disagree with in you know, your older age. So I'm just curious, like, how is it that young people can feel so confident? <laughs> they know little enough to be sure of those opinions. A lifetime of having been 
proved wrong, being feeling sure and finding out how grossly we're in error can help us, can help some of us to better calibrate our confidence and appreciate the complex shades of gray we encounter on so many important issues, drug policy being one of the thornier ones for sure. Yeah, it's that whole, you know, it's just that I often say now when I hear young people, I say, ah, the confidence of youth. (laughs) So we can excuse them. But, and also it's an interesting idea about, you know, what age does a society set voting laws? Mm-hmm. You know, the legal voting age. And I, I remember listening or reading something in history that one of the reasons why the U.S. voting age was 18 was because they were asking young people to go to war. And they're like, if, we, if we're asking them to go to war without having them ability to have a vote on it, that was kind of interesting. So I always thought it was 18, but maybe it may make sense for it to have been... But 40? then you could, yeah. Then you could exactly. <laughs> then then you couldn't fight wars, you know, because yeah, the yeah, people would rebel. Well, I wanna I wanna hone in on one thing before we get into the the question, and that is, uh, I was scrolling through some of the questions that you've been asked about your book, and one of the interesting questions asked by a man named Dave Newsbaum, he said, "You say in the book that you wouldn't advise being a results oriented boss. Can you explain why not?" Gladly. On the one hand, being results-oriented seems so sensible. Every manager in every company wants results. Success, sales, profits. That's what the company lives and dies by. But if you just focus on results, you can create problems that you may fail to anticipate. The problem is that the outcomes your people achieve and the outcomes you achieve are in part due to effort and talent that you wanna reward, yes. But they're also in part due to chance. Sometimes you will release a promising new product in March of 2020, just as the world's economies are shutting down. Those are pretty strong headwinds and a product that could have been fabulously successful in restaurants around the world in any other time in history would have crashed and burned at that point. And the problem is by rewarding results, you're rewarding fortune, rewarding the lucky, and you'll wind up punishing the unlucky, even when the decisions that they made were great. They made smart investments with positive expected value. By rewarding results, you will wind up discouraging risk-taking, even wise and well-intentioned risk-taking by the people around you. If they identify an innovation that would pay a 100 to 1 payoff, something transformative and powerful that could really remake the company's long-term interests. Well, if that prospect has only a 10% chance of succeeding, someone who's just got one career and one life on the line, they might think 90% chance of failure. And if it fails, I'm probably out of a job. Eh, I'm not going to take that risk because I know the company rewards results. And it's, they'll probably fail. But the company should want the person to take that risk. A hundred to one payoff, it's got a massively positive expected value. But if you just reward results, you're going to discourage your people from taking those wise risks. So if you reward results, that's all you'll get. 
<laughs> and less of that than you'd like. Now, I would love to dig a little bit deeper into this because there's a couple different aspects. You know, what you've described is totally understandable to the average person that you did all your work, everything went well, and then a random event happened. And that random event was the global shutdown, as an example. Very clear to see, I didn't cause that. I'm trying everything I can to overcome that. But I want to go back and look at a company, you know, whether that's Apple or whatever, and let's just look at over time, let's just say they've had hundreds or thousands of different product ideas. And if we were to distribute the outcomes of those ideas by their success in one way or another, we would probably find a normal distribution. A couple of them are big hits, a couple of them big losers, and then the rest are kind of in the middle. And what that would imply is that actually, despite the fact that people think that the outcomes over a long period of time are really from you know, effort and all that, there is a random distribution to those outcomes. And sometimes when you say, congratulations, you did a great job, and you reward that positive performance, and you punish the other, you could find that actually you're just rewarding and punishing random outcomes. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's some industries that basically operate like that. Daniel Kahneman has accused investment managers of operating according to those principles that whose fortunes are blown by the winds of chance and whose employers reward the fortunate and punish the unfortunate. And it can be stunningly difficult to identify the role of skill and the returns earned by, say, mutual fund managers. Yeah, I mean, I learned from some seminars that I attended with Dr. Deming. And I was, I can tell you that, you know, the things that he said in those seminars that I attended in 1990 and 1992, when he was 90 and 92 years old teaching with an absolute passion, the things that I, I learned there really stuck with me for the rest of my life. And, and I think about it, but you know, when I, when I look at this, I think about the idea, what he taught me was that there is chance underlying in everything. And once I learned that, I reduced, it reduced my confidence that my outcome was just completely my work. Or I realized there was the environment, there was my effort, plus there was chance. But my question is, how, how does a, a typical manager today who is taught one way, I'm telling you, every business I come across, they want to squeeze tighter on KPIs and managing exact results. How can we help them to think about a different way or to understand the damage that they're doing by potentially forcing performance to a result or seeing randomness as actual performance when in fact it's just randomness. Yeah, well the alternative that I offer to focusing just on outcomes and results, which is talent and effort perturbed by chance, you'd like to capture the expected value of the decision at the time that it is made, that is a purer quantification of the quality of the decision. Now, that, that's a complex calculation that rests on some mm. assumptions. And there is sometimes ambiguity about the best way to calculate expected value. That's okay. There's ambiguity about the best way to compute the profitability or sales yep. of some new product. But if you get serious about attempting to compute the expected values of your decisions and the decisions of the people who work for you, you will get closer 
to being able to make quality decisions unperturbed by the noise of chance. So that's a, I think that's a great way to wrap up some of the learning on, you know, what, what you've learned. And, but I, I think from a finance perspective, for all the finance people out there and also managers that are listening to this, how can a finance person put that into action? You know, one way to do that is to work with the management team to identify what are the opportunities that they see ahead. New products, new regions, new areas, new you know, training, whatever it is that you think is gonna have the biggest impact on the revenue, the market share, the profitability of the company. You decide what area of impact you think it will have and why that's a positive impact. And then from that, make a mark on the wall in that meeting room and have a permanent area in that <laughs> meeting room where you actually write down, on this date, we said this. Yes, take a stand, make a forecast. When you're making a decision, that at its heart must include some forecast of the future, right? You're making a decision because you think the world is gonna be better, the company is gonna be more profitable, the people will be more prosperous and happy and healthier if you make the decision. Well, try to forecast those outcomes. What does that world look like? And if someone else at the company is making a prediction that you think is too rosy, you should feel free to discipline that forecast by asking them, want to bet? <laughs> Put some stakes on that prediction. I don't know if you know the author Annie Duke and her book, Thinking in Bets, which yes. is wonderful. Yes. She talks about how poker players challenge each other. When someone makes some claim that others are skeptical of, they will routinely say, want to bet? And they're great stories of poker players and their propositional bets about gaining weight or losing weight or eating 100 hamburgers at one sitting or being able to endure life in Des Moines, Iowa or any number of things. But companies and colleagues can use that tool to great effect by inviting each other to bet on the outcomes that matter. Yeah, I mean, one of the great benefits of that is that when you put that, let's just take a $100 bill, not a tiny amount of money for most people, for me, for sure, and take that $100 bill and say, all right, let's put down 100 bucks. Well, we're gonna go, okay, wait a minute. How do we define success in this case? Right. How do I know if I win or lose? Uh-huh. And Which then, is so important to figure out, like, what is, it, what is it we're talking about here? How is this decision going to make a difference? And then getting specific and clear about the criteria for assessing success. I'm picturing on that wall, and I think about one of the companies that I own and, and co-founded with my good friend, Dale, putting a, that wall on that wall, the goal in indelible ink. And number two is some sort of laminated way of putting the betters of 100 bucks against and the betters <laughs> of 100 bucks for, and then say, we'll review that in a year when we think mm -hmm. we'll get the information. That's keep a, track, keep score. That will allow you to discipline your own judgment and help you learn and get better over time. So important. And I think one of the words that's in your subtitle about how to calibrate, this helps with calibration because it may come after three months that that was a good idea, but something in the bet has to change now. Something about that may have to change. Now, do we change the bet? Do we trash the bet? Did we all lose? You know, those are, you know, interesting questions because that happens in business. Mm-hmm. Last thing, I, I just want to add in one last thing related to finance. And I always tell, after now teaching finance for 
almost 30 years, I say to my students, when I walk into class, my first words are to, you know, young finance people, I say, finance adds no value. <laughs> and you can imagine the despair and disappointment. <laughs> and I try to explain to them that finance is not what creates value in business. It is the ideas. It is the services. It is the products. It is the risk taking. All of those things is what adds true value. Finance is just a tool to measure that. And in fact, when it comes to what we've just discussed, this is a great example of the role of the CFO and of the financial people in there to say, how do we clearly define this? How do we clearly measure this? And how do we clearly give regular updates on the outcomes of management decisions? And if you can understand that finance is a support function, just as human resource and other areas of the business are support functions, then I believe you can actually become an extremely valuable financial person in a company format. Amen. Yep. All right. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, this is a story that I tell in my book, Perfectly Confident, which you've mentioned. I found myself at a, a course where I had grand hopes for how it would change my life. Tony Robbins is a life coach who has been enormously influential in lots of people's lives. I had read his books as a young man and came away inspired by his ability to help, help me envision my best self. I had the chance to teach with Robbins and sometime later found myself at his Unleash the Power Within weekend. The, what is that? It is those that don't a four-day extravaganza that challenges those in attendance to think big about their goals and their lives to confront the challenges that are holding them back and figure out how to break through those challenges to live their highest ideals and the best life that they could imagine for themselves. So it is inspiring, it is potentially transformative, it is moving and wonderful in many ways. But the event for which this four-day seminar has become famous is the Firewalk. It is the culmination of the first day's events. And before it happens, it happens late in the evening of the first day. And for the few hours preceding, Robbins whipped the crowd into such a frenzied lather of excitement that we were practically exploding out of the convention center. There were like 10,000 people crowded into this massive hall in the LA Convention Center. And he had us all screaming with excitement and anticipation, ready to walk across these hot coals. Um, you do not look like the type of person that's going to be overpowered by something like that. <laughs> he had me going. I was all in, hook, line, and sinker. So we marched outside to find these huge burning pyres and these embers laid with glowing coals that we were to walk over. And in my enthusiasm, 
I somehow failed to take account of the cautionary safety warnings that he had offered. So I was nothing if not confident. I was ready to prove to myself and the world and Robbins and everyone around how brave I was. And I marched bravely across the bed of hot coals in that moment overcome by enthusiasm, overconfident in my ability to endure the risk, I burned the hell out of the soles of my feet. When you get to the end, it turns out that those glowing embers stick to tender flesh, like I have on the bottom of my feet, and you have to wipe them off and get your feet sprayed down. The Los Angeles Fire Department was there with hoses. I should have done a better job at that. And I suffered the consequences. And immediately afterwards, just felt like such an idiot. Like, who noticed that I failed to wipe my feet off? I was the one. Why did I, why did I let myself get carried away? I mean, he had offered these warnings. Make sure to wipe your feet off. Make sure to get your feet hosed down. And I had nothing to show for my bravado except for blisters on the soles of my feet that I then got to suffer with until they healed. And reflection on how easy it was for me to get carried away. Even a nerdy, egg-headed professor who thought about confidence and overconfidence, how easy it was, how pleasant it was to let myself get carried away by that emotion. Man, that made me think hard about the risks that all of us are subject to when we let ourselves get carried away, when we think that somehow believing in ourselves is enough to ensure success. It's not. Okay, so let's go through, like there's a lot of different things that the idea of believing is an interesting topic. What I want to do is just ask you about the lessons that you learned. And maybe we could just look at, did you learn any lessons in the moment? And surely, looking back now, <laughs> looking tell us back, the lesson I did. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so many lessons. Some of it has to do with being willing to ask myself, how might this go wrong? How might I fail? In the moment at which that deflating needle of caution is most useful in bursting my balloon of confidence is right at that moment when I'm savoring the sweetness of confidence the most, when I'm sure that success is guaranteed, when I'm already imagining myself crossing the finish line victorious, that's really when I ought to be thinking, wait, how could this go wrong? What are the other competitors thinking about their chances? What happens if I fail? And is there anything I can do to protect myself now against those risks? So that's deeply related to a lesson that Daniel Kahneman offers to companies and organizations that he calls the pre-mortem. Right when you're making the commitment, when you're confident that you can do it, that you can succeed, pause and hold a meeting where you imagine failure. It's sometime down the road. This investment has turned out to be a catastrophe. You've lost money. You've disappointed your investors. 
you've lost credibility in the markets, what are the most likely reasons why this investment will turn out badly? Asking that question can help you identify risks and maybe help you think about ways that you can hedge those risks and avoid the full exposure to those dangers. That's fantastic. I mean, there's uh, some things that I take away from it. Maybe I'll share those and if you've got Please. more. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we often say mind over body and we say that our mind, you know, can, is so powerful, you know, that it is powerful, but there are times when our mind, you know, doesn't actually help our body <laughs> or our mind is, you know, sometimes giving us a different signal. The second thing I thought about is the idea of belief. And, you know, one of the things that I've always been challenged by is like trying to achieve goals. And I think I've always kind of set goals that I felt like I could achieve, but I've worked with people and myself at times where I thought, I don't think this person believes that they can achieve this. And when we dig deeper, I find out, okay, there are real deep reasons as to why they truly inside doubt that they could even do this. So I do something where I, I have a little format that I work with myself and with others where I basically say, let's write down what success in this area would look like. And to give an example, one of the things I said years ago, I said, I wanted to be attractive. And what I said, you know, when I teach this to people, I say, so the first thing I have to do is define what is attractive. Mm -hmm. And so my definition, and I say your definition, so I use words, not visualization. And my words are that I attract good things and good people. <laughs> so if I attract good things and good people, then I'm attractive. The second thing I do after defining attractive, then I define the, you know, the description of that. The next thing I do is try to say, what would be the actions that a person who is attractive does? And then I said, you know, one of those, I, I come up with three specific actions. And one of them is that I, I share my positive energy with one new person every day. And Don, unfortunately, you're the recipient. Oh, <laughs> you're sweet. Yeah. The second thing I do is I help one person get to their goal each day. You know, help one person get one step further, closer to their goal. And the third thing, and this one really, really changed my life, is all my words are positive. Mm. And I basically repeat that kind of mantra over and over again. And then it, it infiltrates into my mind. And then all of a sudden, I start to create the conditions. So on the one hand, I think that belief can help in attaining goals and all that. And if you don't believe it, how are you going to get there? But I also realized I had to clearly define it. So that's one thing that I'm thinking a lot about is belief and confidence that you're and it reminds me of something I say to my students, I say in finance, because finance is such a complex topic. We don't have any laws, much like many social sciences, where there's, you know, we don't have the law of gravity. We have models, we have theories, but none of them apply consistently. So I tell my students, if you leave my course with less confidence than I succeeded. <laughs> now, I have the same goal for my MBA students. <laughs> now, the last thing I just want to picture a visualization. Imagine kind of a, a pretty big balloon, the type of balloon that if you filled it up with helium and you held onto it, it would lift you off the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Think about that. It doesn't have to be huge, but mm -hmm. enough. So now imagine that you're standing there and you and your friends are playing around. You've got this helium tank. You've got this balloon and you're hounding onto it. And now you're starting to fill it. 
And then all of a sudden it's kind of fun, like, whoa, it's lifting me off the ground. But then your friends feel it to the point where you start rising. And there is about a one meter distance in which your intuition is going to speak to you about what to do. And if you make the wrong decision, <laughs> you're going to be 30 meters in the air uh -huh. and, and there's going to be no possible happy outcome of this uh -huh. situation. So the idea that I'm thinking about is, you know, you mentioned about a needle or the prick to do it. But my point is, is to go on with what you're talking about at the moment that you are at your peak of confidence is when that balloon is just blowing up. And that uh -huh. is the moment that we must stop instantly or else it could lead to something disastrous. So tell me yeah. some of your thoughts on those, if you have any, and then let's, let's discuss. Oh, many thoughts. I love, I love that image. It's a powerful one. The image that, that, that comes to mind for me is one that was conjured by the psychologist William James. So he wrote a powerful treatise on the power of belief in which he envisioned getting stuck on a, an alpine journey at a chasm that he had to cross in order to proceed. And it's a wide chasm and he's not sure he can make it. And he describes two possible outcomes, one in which he believes in himself and that faith helps him get a little further and he makes it across successfully. In the other outcome, it's not so happy, he doubts himself, he worries, his anxiety holds him back, and instead of making it across, he falls into the chasm. He concludes, in such a situation, I would be a fool not to believe, for the faith brings about its own realization. When I first read that, I, I took it as a powerful testament to the value of believing in yourself. But as I thought more about it later, in light of some of my research, I started to question the generality of that conclusion. How, I mean, it's entirely plausible that believing in yourself could help you achieve more, could help you get maybe another foot in that big jump. But just because it'll help you get a little further doesn't mean it'll help you get infinitely far. To believe in yourself, that you can make it across a 20 foot or a 100 foot, foot chasm, that's just fantasy. And believing in yourself such that it lures you to jump to your death, that's got to be a mistake, even if it displays admirable confidence in your own abilities. So having an accurate sense of what you can achieve, yes, it can feel good to inflate that balloon of confidence, but how much? If it's carrying you away, as you described, you can get yourself into a whole bunch of trouble. You can wind up jumping into a chasm that you can't make it across. How confident should you be? You should be as confident as the truth can justify. Mm. And that doesn't mean selling yourself short or lowering your aspirations because I think, I know my research documents the many circumstances in which people are underconfident. They decline to take risks. They fail to initiate relationships. They fail to try new products or take risky job positions because they're afraid that they'll fail. The imposter syndrome is all about underconfidence and the incorrect perception that we can't do it when in fact we can. 
believing the truth means believing that you can do it if you can. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm thinking about a hammer. Imagine a hammer. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I'm thinking that confidence is a hammer. Confidence can help you build a house, but you can't build the whole house with one hammer. So I just wrote down as you were speaking that think of confidence as a tool mm. that has its limits, but has its mm. usefulness. Now, let me ask you another question about that crossing that chasm. And I have William James varieties of religious experience, and I've read that and, you know, very, very impactful. He's brilliant. Yeah. But let me ask another question, because this is one that's often considered in the world of self-help and all that is all right i agree confidence won't get you over that it's not guaranteed but it's guaranteed that doubt will never get you over that if the implication is that there's no place for doubt that you never want to pull out the pin to puncture that balloon that's insane the students in my class who are most sure that they're going to succeed and therefore think they don't need to study, those aren't the ones who get the highest grades on my exam. There's a psychologist named Julie Norum who studies a phenomenon called defensive pessimism. This is negative rumination that produces success. Lots of my best students motivate themselves by imagining how awful it would be if they failed right? How embarrassing. They've gotten A's in everything. Like what happened? What would happen if they didn't get an A on? Oh, their family would be disappointed. They would feel so guilty. They motivate themselves to work by imagining how bad failure would be. That sort of pessimistic rumination can be highly motivating and deluding yourself into thinking that success is guaranteed. Can it persuade you? Eh, I got this one in the bag. No problem right? Then you're the hare who dawdles and naps and is passed by the hardworking tortoise who doesn't fool himself into thinking he's got it in the bag. And I, I'm going to have an additional question here before we continue on. And that, I need some help, Don. I need some help because, you know, I gotta, I, I'm willing to question my belief when I got an expert like you on the line. So my belief has always been that if if we clearly define where we want to go and, and, you know, some people do it through a visualization board. You know, we've seen a lot of self-help that does that. In my case, I believe it's words because I can repeat those words and that will be like an incantation that will eventually build into my mind and all that. But, you know, how can the average person out there who does have some pretty big goals that they want to achieve and they do have some doubts as we all have, they do understand that belief has a role. How do they think about belief in the, in the aspect of wanting to achieve this goal? Yeah, it's a good question. And my answer comes from the central role that forecasting plays in any decision-making process. So how confident should you be? Lots of people answer that question by wanting to believe that simply being more confident, that fooling themselves into being more confident, all else equal, will improve their chances of actually succeeding. And that's a dangerous belief, in part because it can lead you to jump into a chasm that's too wide for you to make it across. But it also misrepresents reality. If we think we can forecast an uncertain future with 100% accuracy, that's just confused. 
the future is complicated and we can do things that increase the likelihood of success or of achieving positive outcomes, but it's rarely 100%. And it's worth thinking about that uncertain future as a probability distribution. Now, that might highlight ways that you can increase the probability of going down desirable paths, but misfortune will be on that decision tree and it comes with some probability. Think honestly about those risks, those probabilities, and help those around you do so as well. If they pretend like they know what's gonna happen, ask them, wanna bet? And then delineate what could happen and how likely it is. Putting some money online doesn't even have to be a hundred bucks. A reputational bet of a dollar can help people discipline their thinking in a way that brings it closer to accuracy. Got it. And you know, at all my career, I was a financial analyst. And the number one thing a financial analyst does is study an industry, study a company, and make a forecast. Mm-hmm. And we put our money down on that forecast. Mm-hmm. So I decided for my academic research that I would look at the accuracy of analyst forecasts. Mm-hmm. And I looked at companies around the world. I looked at them over the last, every company, basically, in the forecasts that were, that were on average made on those companies. And I looked at them over more than a decade. And from my, my work, my conclusion was 25%. What do I mean? I mean that the typical case is that an analyst would forecast that a company would have 125 in earnings next year, and instead it had 100. Now that is skewed by some markets where there is extreme optimism. I presented this Mm -hmm. research in Korea and that percentage was 80%. And I I had to think about how I'm going to frame this to this great group of academics and also practitioners. And I said, I went into the room and I said, ladies and gentlemen, you may not like what I tell you today, but there is one thing you're definitely gonna love. I will present to you firm confirmational research that you are an optimistic bunch of people. (laughs) So, I mean, go ahead. So I was just gonna note a pattern that you have probably observed in these forecasts, forecasts that companies make of their earnings. And it's a game that each and every one of us plays with ourselves. The game that companies play with the markets has to do with setting expectations over periods of time where the five-year, 10-year forecast, that is always fabulously rosy. Way down the road, the company's gonna make a ton of money. But this earnings forecast that's coming for the next quarter, eh, right? You wanna, the company wants to talk down earnings expectations so that it can beat the consensus forecast, maybe just by a little bit, but better to beat it than be disappointed, right? So how do you manage that tension and a recklessly optimistic long-term vision with an accurate or slightly pessimistic short-term expectation? That requires walking down your expectations as the moment of truth comes closer. And there's evidence for that, for instance, in students' expectations for their grades. You ask them at the beginning of the semester and everyone's sure they're gonna get an A on the final exam. You ask them when they're walking into the exam they're a little more accurate. It's an interesting point. And Don, I'll take you back 25 years ago when I was an analyst in Thailand. So I was, you know, one of the the many analysts covering the Thai stock market. And in Thailand, you don't get much information at that time from companies. 
it could even be rare that you'd even be able to meet the company or you'd meet someone that really had something to say that it would be of value or that wouldn't be actually misleading. So as an analyst, you know, it was kind of the purest situation where you would take the information you have without a bias from the company and you'd make your forecast. And we didn't make quarterly forecasts, although we had quarterly numbers, we made annual forecasts. So then after struggling in this environment and being way off in forecasts and watching that happen over a 12 month period. And then over the years, I started turning on the TV of CNBC and all this and I thought, the company missed its earnings by one penny. I, I just I thought, how is this happening? But I realized that the, the crap that you're being sold on CNBC is not a forecast. It's a recalibration that's consistently made over a 12 month period through mm -hmm. communication with the company. And they're actually making a one week forecast mm -hmm. based upon, you know, 51 <laughs> weeks of information to give yeah. that. And the problem with that is that that can't make you money. You have right. to be able to, particularly in the long no, run. I mean, yeah. maybe some traders can trade on that information, but in the long run, you have to identify the stock that's going to move or the, the, the earnings that are going to move, you know, let's say minimum six months, but probably 12 months that would give you enough time to sell the idea internally to your investment committee to get through the process and then to take and start to build a position without the market noticing. And then you're damaging the entry price that you're getting into it. So 12 months is the, is the unit that I used in my academic research, looking at both us and companies all around the world. Mm -hmm. So much to learn, so much to learn. Now, what I do want to do is I want to bring you back to one of the questions, and that is, you know, based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I really want to bring it, want to bring it back to that moment at Tony Robbins' event. I want to bring it back to what Michael Gerber talks about in the e-myth called the entrepreneurial seizure that moment of absolute excitement that in fact, at least one of my listeners is going through right now. <laughs> they see the opportunity of a lifetime. They are pumped mm -hmm. up. They're getting a lot of reinforced, you know, feedback. What one piece of advice would you give them? Ask yourself why you might be wrong. And in doing so, take care to consider the advice from your critic, your enemy, the Debbie Downer, whose skepticism and grouchiness always grates on your nerves. That person has a gift of inestimable value to offer. Their negativity can help temper and strengthen the confidence you feel by injecting a little bit of reality in it. Ask yourself why you might be wrong has been called by psychologists. Consider the opposite, the most general purpose, useful and powerful debiasing strategy we have yet identified. It invites you to consider what you're neglecting. It invites you to imagine how things could turn out differently. It helps you consider other courses of action, maybe undesirable outcomes, and think probabilistically about the uncertainties inherent in a complex future. And let me explain a, a real-life example in my case. We were looking at expanding our coffee business into a neighboring country. 
And my business partner was pretty excited. Dale was very excited about the opportunity, as I was too. It was time for us to expand regionally. And we had a very, very interesting and what I would say attractive proposal that was brought to us by another coffee business, you know, for our business, Coffee Works. And basically, Dale, we agreed, look, Dale, do all the research you can, fly to that country, talk with the people, get the numbers, meet with some of the potential customers, meet with competitors, everything you can find, and then come back and let's meet. And so he came back after six months of work because we weren't in a rush on it. We had time. After six months of work, we agreed upon a date. And Dale, but before we agreed upon that final date, what I said is, I want to break this presentation into two parts. And it's going to be two days. On this first day, the only thing I want to hear is your forecast about the upside, about the opportunity. I want to see your revenue forecast. I want to see the profitability forecast. I want to see the, the excitement about it. And on the next week, a week later, where we meet each week, what I want to do is just have a discussion about all the risks. And what we found by doing it that way is that it freed us from, I didn't nag and go into that meeting and go, what about this? What about this? It was like, let's get a picture of what the opportunity is here. But it also kind of exhausted the evidence related to the positive side. And it allowed basically us to go in a week later with less emotion and go, holy crap, this just doesn't make sense for us. And we stopped, we didn't do the deal. And so from a practical business perspective, you know, that is one way that the listeners can do it is separate your research between return and risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so valuable. In the Vatican, they call it the devil's advocate. In the military, they call it red teaming. Daniel Kahneman calls it the pre-mortem. Think about how it could go wrong. And sometimes it works to have individuals assigned to the devil's advocate role, but other times it can be fun, as you describe, to turn the exercise around and ask, wait, what are all the reasons against this plan that we had been so excited about? Oh, well, Fantastic. there's usually plenty of grist for that <clears throat> meal and there's stuff worth talking about. So I just, I have to go back to this question and for the people out there that are on day, at nearing the end of day one of uh, <laughs> Unleash, of the, unleash power the Power Within. Yeah. They're uh -huh. filled with the acceptance. So now forget about all this reasoned thinking and you know, <laughs> all of this stuff that, that you and I have both talked about. But at the moment of the ultimate excitement and all of that, when you're disregarding everything, how, do we, how does a person break through themselves or someone break through to them or is it just inevitable you're going to burn your feet? There are a lot of people there wiser than I was who did not burn their feet. You seize the opportunities and enjoy the ride. If you're into it, go skydiving or bungee jumping, but make sure that you got your harness well secured before you do such that you can be like Odysseus who heard the call of the sirens, but had protected himself by being lashed to the mast beforehand and knew that his, his sailors would carry him safely past the threat that he so desperately wanted to give into at that moment. Got to go back to that story. Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I am having so much fun with this book 
and talking about its message, which has emerged from 20 years of research on the subject. So my goal for the next year is to see this book get out in the world and have an influence. It's a message that I see as particularly poignant at this time when overconfident world leaders have gotten their countries in so much trouble and calibrating our confidence about getting out into the world in the presence of a virus and how confident we can be about opening our economies up again. Oh man, lots of interesting challenges there. And then the, the shows of confidence that necessarily show up as a part of U.S. presidential election, not least of which one in which Donald Trump is going to be one of the candidates. It's a oh little boy, confidence there's going to there. be a lot to talk about. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listeners, you'll be able to go to the show notes here, and I'll have everything linked in the show notes. But if you can't wait for that, just go to perfectlyconfident.com or go to Amazon and look for Perfectly Confident. So there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Don, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. I say brave because when I ask most people to come on the show, they say, no, Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. So you have now turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? It has been a pleasure to talk about my failures with you, Andrew. Thank you for giving me the chance. It is my pleasure too. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host for the day, saying, I'll see you on the upside.